So I want us to consider a tale of two objections. So once while Mindy and I were visiting uh, Charlottesville, Virginia, we were kind of in their downtown area, and we started observing this very interesting interaction between a street preacher and a bunch of, I'm assuming, inebriated college students walking by. And, and it, was, it was a fascinating exchange, and a lot of the words that were spoken I can't repeat here. But here is the essence of sort of the objection to the street preacher. Who do you think you are to judge me? How dare you pronounce any sort of judgment on me? How dare you call out what I'm doing and how I choose to live my life? And really, while we could, we could watch one of these uh, objections and watch one of these interactions, uh, really, honestly, that's not uh, in any way unusual. I mean, when people call us out on our sin, we, we tend to not like that. When people call us out on a lifestyle that, that we don't want to be called out on, we can respond in pretty hostile ways. Maybe you have had that happen to you if you tried to share the gospel with somebody. Or, or maybe you've been the one to sort of respond in a hostile way when someone starts talking to you about judgment and about your sin. So, so we have an objection to the, the talk of judgment. The other objection happened when Mindy and I were assembling a group of folks at a coffee shop just to talk about Jesus and talk about Christianity and with people who had objections. And in that group, a man named Charles came. And Charles was an interesting guy because in many ways he was very religious. Like he wanted to be a good person. He wanted to commit himself to God. But this is, this is what that meant for him. He was trying to make up for all his past sins. And so he very overtly said he was trying to earn God's favor and earn his way into heaven. And so as we tried to share the gospel with him and say, hey, it's about the finished work of Jesus. It's not about our works. We can't earn our way into heaven. He kept stiff arming the gospel over and over and over. And here's the nature of his objection. So all you're telling me is I just have to pray a prayer and that's it. Like I can just say I'm sorry and then just do whatever I want. And what was a little bit frustrating about that is because what, what we were saying about the gospel and what Charles was hearing were not the same thing. But here is the truth. There are those who would present the gospel exactly how Charles heard us present it. That all I have to do is sort of pray this prayer and say I'm sorry and I'm good. I sort of check the box, get my fire insurance, I don't want to go to hell, so I'll do that thing. And then I'll just kind of live my life as if Jesus is of minimal importance. Perhaps that's how you've heard the gospel presented. Perhaps that's how you're engaging faith. But underneath that objection is this idea that, man, grace is cheap. Or that following Jesus really doesn't mean a whole lot other than saving me from some eternity in fire that I don't want to go to. So two objections. One has to do with judgment. Keep that talk of God's wrath and judgment out of here. Don't presume to judge me and my lifestyle. Where do Christians think that they're better than other people? The other objection is to salvation by grace alone through faith alone or a misunderstanding that makes it sound as if Christians are just free to do whatever as long as they say the right words or go through maybe the right religious actions. So as we continue in our study of Jonah in chapter 3, we find that both of these objections are addressed. 
Not necessarily directly, but the truths and what is really happening in Jonah chapter 3 addresses both of these situations. And as those who are called to live on mission, church, I want us to have good categories for what it means to talk both about God's judgment as well as what it means to actually follow God. That we hold up both the truth that God is holy and he is good, and we need to take seriously the destructive power of sin and how deeply rebellion runs. But we also hold out this incredible, awesome grace and mercy that God gives us through Jesus Christ. But that following Christ means a deep heart change, a transformation that affects the very core of who we are and how we live our lives. So both of those things are held up for us in Jonah chapter 3, and I want us to reflect on them. And so here's sort of the main points that I want us to take away. That God is a God of justice and mercy. Jonah gives us insights into both of these truths, and so I want to unpack this central theme, that God is a God of justice and mercy, by looking at three points. So first, talking about judgment on sin. Then I want to talk about repentance of sin and what that looks like. And then I want to talk about what it means to have salvation from sin. So let's first reflect a little bit on this idea of judgment on sin. So in verses 1 and 2, there's sort of a reset. If you were with us at the beginning of this study, we saw that God gave Jonah a commission. Hey, I want you to go to Nineveh. And Jonah proceeded to run the complete opposite direction. And so after this incredible encounter with a storm and then staying in the belly of a fish... And Jonah has this moment where he repents of his sin. God gives him the commission again. After running from God, now Jonah is ready to actually follow God in obedience. And so this is what verses 1 and 2 say. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. Okay, Jonah, here we go again. I want you to go to Nineveh, and I'm going to give you a message that I want you to proclaim to that city. Look, look, this is a little side note. This is for free, really. Like, friend, missionary, failed missionary, here is the beautiful truth. God doesn't shelve you. Like, you could fail in... The, the, the call that God has in your life, you could fail in being faithful to share the gospel. You could get caught in sin, but God does not shelve you. God will maybe upset your world. God will maybe throw storms at you. Maybe you'll get swallowed by a fish. But in all of that, God is redeeming and restoring because he wants to use you. He has no intention just to bench you and put you in the corner and say, all right, I'm done with you. We'll talk in eternity. No, God still has purpose. God still intends to use you. And so don't shelve yourself because God does not shelve you. Like I said, that's for free. So Jonah is given this commission and this time he goes. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days journey in breadth. Jonah began to go into the city going a day's journey and he called out yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. So Jonah now is compelled by the greatness and the glory of God. Now Jonah is compelled by who God is and the mission that he has been given, and he goes to the city. And Nineveh is described as an exceedingly great city. 
Now, this phrase, it's important that we actually get inside what this phrase means, because it, on the surface, it may seem like it means one thing, but it actually means something different. So the phrase, exceedingly great city, definitely speaks to Nineveh's sort of importance. It was the capital of Assyria. It was a cultural and political center. It was a great city in in all respects in that way. But that is not what this phrase means. Because if you, you look at the Hebrew, what the Hebrew literally says is that Nineveh is a great city to God. That, that, that important tagline there, to God, that is in the original language is super important because what qualifies Nineveh's importance is not its political and cultural greatness, but it is important to God. Nineveh is on God's heart. Nineveh is important to God. That's why he sends Jonah. That's why even after Jonah tries to run away, he wrecks Jonah's world and has him swallowed by a fish because he wants Jonah to go to Nineveh because Nineveh is important to God. Even after Jonah did everything he could to run, God was relentlessly committed to making sure Jonah gets there because Nineveh needs to hear the word that God has for it. And so church, here's another point for us to recognize as those who are called on mission Like, look, God's work in your life isn't just for you. It isn't just about you. God's love for you that shapes you, God's relentless pursuit of you to transform you and make you like Christ and to send you on mission, yes, it's because he loves you. But it's also because he wants to demonstrate his love through you. Like, God's love to your neighbors and your coworkers and your family and to this city is demonstrated through how he consistently goes after you to shape you and send you. And so we need to see that our growth in godliness, our sanctification, God working in our lives is always meant to be not just for us, but for those who need to know Christ. God's work in you is not just about you. Remember that, church. And so God sends Jonah with this message. Yet 40 days and Nineveh will be overthrown. So Nineveh is an important city to God, but God still gives Jonah this message of judgment. Hey, Nineveh, in 40 days, judgment is coming. We can't miss this message. We can't miss it. This is the word that that God gave to Jonah. And look, if we're honest, messages of judgment, we don't like them. They're they're not all that fun to to speak and to say. But this is the message that God gave to Jonah. Nineveh, God has seen your sin. God has seen your wickedness. God has seen your injustice and your oppression and your violence and your brutality. And he is going to bring judgment. How would you like that to be the message? God says, hey, I got a word. I want you to go speak to someone. Okay, God, I'm ready. In 40 days, you're going to be overthrown. I mean, can you imagine what this would be like if you talked to your neighbors this way? Like, you go, next time you go to your neighbor's house, yet in 40 days and the Johnson family will be overthrown. That's going to make conversation kind of awkward, right? We don't like this message of judgment. Man, we'd rather speak about God's love. Like, on the cross, God shows his love for us. God loves sinners. He saves sinners. That's what we want to talk about. We don't like the idea of speaking of judgment. And then if you think about our culture, where personal autonomy and self-expression and self-determined identity and self-determined truth reign supreme. So we don't like messages of judgment. 
You know, I'm, I'm thoroughly convinced that we actually don't have a problem with judgment as a culture. I mean, just hop on social media. The problem is we don't like judgment directed at us. Like, throw it out at everybody else, no problem. But when it comes this way, we have a problem. And then you think about the baggage we have as Christians. Like, we're constantly bombarded with this message. Don't come across judgmental. Don't be a hypocrite. Don't come across as if you think you're better than other people. And so we just don't want that to be the appearance, and so we just won't talk about judgment. So all that put together means that the message of judgment is often neglected. But here's the, 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 the tragic aspect of that is if we neglect the reality and the truth of God's judgment, we do violence to the gospel. And we do violence to the nature and character of God. Because here is the truth. God hates sin. God hates evil and wickedness and rebellion and pride and greed and lust and anger and deceit. Because here's what sin does. Sin wrecks men. Sin oppresses women. Sin abuses children. Sin ruins families and marriages and relationships. Sin leads to racism and sexism and economic injustice and political oppression. Sin robs joy and life and peace. Sin wrecks our relationship with God and keeps us from him. All that God created good and beautiful and true and peaceful, sin wants to corrupt and ruin and destroy. You see, God's judgment is not about him being some cosmic crank. God's judgment isn't about him being some oppressive ruler just waiting to nuke sinners. God's judgment is because he actually cares about goodness and righteousness and justice in our world. He is utterly committed that those things reign and rule. And so God's judgment is about him pushing back darkness. God's judgment is him about overthrowing oppression and evil. God's judgment is him is about him cleansing creation. So whenever you see in scripture, you see these, these massive moves of God's judgment. Underneath that is cleansing. Underneath that is eliminating the, the evil and the oppression and the wickedness that is ruining and wrecking people and wrecking the world. So God's judgment is because he's good. God's judgment is because he's just. God's judgment because he is true. And he cares that those things are what reign in his world. And so the problem is not that God judges. The problem, or really the question is, is why do you and I take sin so lightly? Why are you and I so hesitant to actually look at God's judgment and his justice and go, yeah, that's good. Yeah, that's necessary. Now, I know that doesn't answer all the questions about God's judgment and justice. I know there's a lot of things still left on the table that we have questions about. But at the end of the day, really, the, the biggest question in front of us is, why do we not take sin so seriously? Why are we not upset and broken and torn about the injustice and the evil and the oppression and the greed and the deceit and the lust and, and all of the destructive power of sin? You see, to be hesitant about God's judgment shows that we're not taking sin seriously. 
or that we're, we're finding ways to minimize its effect. Oh, it's not that bad. Why is that? Well, here's my, I'm almost 100% sure guess. It's because we know deep down inside that for God to execute judgment means we would be caught up in it. Like we know deep down inside we deserve God's judgment. We deserve God's justice. Because yes, we have, all of us, have experienced the destructive power of sin in our lives. We have had people sin against us and and hurt us. And some of us have been ruined and wrecked in some profound ways. We we know the, the pain of sin. But we also are guilty. We've been victims, but we're also victimizers. We've been guilty of greed and lust and anger and manipulation and oppression. We've been guilty of abuse. We've been guilty of deceit. We've been guilty of ruining and wrecking other people with our sin. We're on the hook too. We are part of the problem. And so we often stiff arm God's judgment and justice because we don't want to have to look at the truth that we deserve it. And so I would ask you, even right now, what do you do with that? What do you do with the reality that God is good and he is just and he is holy and he is righteous and because he is committed to all of those things means he will deal with sin? And you're part of the problem. What do you do with that? See, Nineveh was important to God, but that did not negate the fact that Nineveh was locked in absolute sin. And so when we see these two things kind of come together, we see our hope, actually. Because though Nineveh was a wicked, rebellious, brutal city, and Assyria was a, was a terrible, they were the, sort of the terrorists of the ancient world, yet God still saw them as important. God still had a message for them. Here is the, the hope that God holds out. So this is what God said through the prophet Ezekiel. As I live, declares the Lord, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked turn from his way and live. See, here's our hope. In every pronouncement of judgment, in every calling out of judgment, there's always this implicit call, turn from your sin. Turn from your sin. Repent of your sin. Turn away. And that is exactly what happens in Nineveh. As we read in verse 5, And the people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. So Jonah brings this message of judgment, and citywide repentance breaks out. So to kind of give you an idea of just what is happening here, I want to back up to verse 3. And and Nineveh is described as the, the way that the, the ESV translated, three days' journey in breadth. Uh, again, we're dealing with, with uh, some phrases in Hebrew that are actually pretty notoriously difficult to, to translate because these phrases are it's the only time they show up anywhere in the Old Testament and really show up anywhere kind of in the ancient, kind of ancient literature. And so some scholars believe, okay, this is a description of the size of Nineveh. But there's a problem with that because both archaeology and the rest of kind of written history don't really give the impression that Nineveh was this big. And and also, the the Hebrew in here is, again, the way it's translated, it's not exactly 
It doesn't say three, day, three days journey in breadth. It just says it's a three days journey. So here's what scholars really believe, and I think they're onto something here, is what's happening. And I think it actually makes sense of the rest of the passage. So in the ancient world, if you were a sort of an emissary or an ambassador from another nation and you would go into an important city, here's what would happen. You basically had a three-day ordeal. Day one, you would show up and you would meet with some officials. They would greet you and you kind of say, okay, here's why I'm here. Here's my business. Day two would be, hey, I'm going to go actually do the business. So I'm going to meet with the people I need to meet with, have the sort of execute whatever, for whatever reason I'm there, I'm going to, I'm going to do my deal. And then day three was these, this kind of ceremonial goodbye. So they didn't just say, nice to see you, goodbye. It was like this, you know, feasts and ceremonies and all that. So to, to come into an important city was a three days journey. And so what this makes sense of is how it describes Jonah gets there day one and proclaims this message. And so day one, he meets with whatever officials were there to greet him. He is the national prophet of Israel. This is a, he's an important guy coming from a foreign country that there's some political tension with. And so he's going to be greeted by officials. And he tells them the message. Now, the normal protocol would have been day two, go meet with this group and this group and this group, maybe meet with the king. But here's what happens. Jonah meets with the officials, proclaims the message, and boom, repentance. The message spreads. So the, the picture here, the sense of the text is this. The message overflowed the banks of the normal chain of communication. Like it didn't wait until day two. They didn't wait to, to take Jonah around to the different people he needed to talk to. It, didn't, it wasn't necessary that he sort of go do all of this work on day two. It was he met with these people, the message went out, and these officials were so excited or so overwhelmed that the message spread like wildfire. So we have a picture of revival. When, when, when the normal channels of communication aren't necessary, when the message can't be contained, you have a picture of revival. You have a picture of a message landing powerfully. Jonah met with one group of people, and from the king all the way down to the people, repentance breaks out. And so what we see here is God's word powerfully, powerfully affecting a city, powerfully cutting to the heart, powerfully bringing conviction of sin, and people responding in repentance. And then what we get in verses 5 through 9 is this picture and really instruction of what genuine repentance looks like. In verse 5, it says that the people believed God. Here is deep conviction of sin to say, God, I believe what you have to say. Like, I recognize that what you say is true, and so that... You say, you are good, you are holy, you are just, and I am not. I believe that. You are the one who determines what is good and what is evil. I am not, and I believe that. You say that I have sinned against you and broken your law, and I deserve judgment, and I believe that. Conviction of sin, believing that God is true in all that he says about who he is and who we are. Nineveh didn't make excuses. They didn't, they didn't try to object. They didn't say, oh, well, but this, this, and this. No, they agreed with God. They came under the conviction that God is right. This is where repentance starts. We, we believe that God is true in what he says about who he is and about who we are. But going deeper, 
we see sorrow over sin in verses 6 through 8. The word reached the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat in ashes. And he issued a proclamation and published through Nineveh, by the decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth. So in response to this message of judgment is coming, the entire city breaks out into what is essentially a, a, a posture of mourning. So to wear sackcloth was a cultural expression of, I am in great distress and in mourning. Similar to, we wear black at funerals, or to, to, to express, hey, I'm in a season of mourning. They would put on sackcloth, which was super, super uncomfortable. And we also see them fasting. All of these things are outward expressions of the internal sorrow that they are experiencing. They are torn up about their sin. It wasn't just that they go, yeah, you're right, God. Yep, we sinned. Yes, we deserve judgment. No, it cut them to the deepest core. I mean, yes, they felt these things emotionally, but it was deeper than emotion. This got right to the essence of their affections, what they loved, what they cherished, what they longed for. They knew deep in their soul they were not right, and they longed for to be made right and for things to be right. Sorrow over sin. And so look, you don't need to put on sackcloth. You don't even necessarily need to wear black. It's not about the necessarily the outward action. It's really about what is going on in your soul. Is there actual sorrow for sin? Because this, is, this takes things deeper than just intellectual assent. Okay, I'm going to push here for a little bit. Like a lot of us, we're really good at reading scripture and agreeing on paper with everything it says. Like, yes, I know such and such things are sin. Like, like, we'll even confess sin to one another and say, I did this thing and it was wrong, but absolutely no sorrow over it. And so it's a pure intellectual exercise for us. That's not repentance. The, the, the real repentance is that heart-changing, heart-churning sense that what I have done has broken the very fabric of goodness. And yes, I deserve judgment, and I'm mourning over that, but it's not just necessarily that I deserve judgment. I'm mourning over the effects of what I have done. Man, look what I have done to hurt people. Look how I have broken the good that God has given me. Look at how I have rebelled against what God has given me. I think for a lot of us, we need to seek the Lord and what it looks like to be broken over our sin, to, to, to feel sorrow, to, to, to mourn, to, to feel deeply in our souls that it isn't right. And not just check the box and sort of have this like, yeah, okay, yeah, I agree. Sorrow over sin. Now, we need to be careful here because there is a kind of sorrow that is not repentance. This is what 2 Corinthians 7, 9 through 10 says. The Apostle Paul writing to the Corinthian church says, I rejoice not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. Like, look, you can feel bad for your sin and it not be actual repentance. You can feel bad for your sin and it not be that deep, deep in your soul acknowledgement that what you have done has sinned against God and you've sinned against other people. Like, you can feel bad and it just be because you got caught. Or you can feel bad because 
The sin is making a mess in your world and you don't like it. And so, yeah, you hate the sin because the mess it's making. But it's not really because you believe that you violated God's commandments and you're wrecking all that is good. Or you can feel bad and it sort of puts you in this place of self-pity, right? Here's how this plays out. Like, I feel bad about my sin, and so to deal with it, I'm going to go sin in another way. Man, I I feel bad about how angry I get, so I'm going to go drink. I I feel bad about how I get into fights with people, so I'm going to go bury that in food. Like, that's not sorrow that leads to repentance. That is worldly grief. That leads to death because it drives you deeper and deeper into sin. And so let's not... Let's not mistake just this emotional experience with actual deep, heartfelt repentance. Because again, I think a lot of us can get caught in that. We feel bad about it, but it's telling what we do after the fact. Because as 2 Corinthians tells us, and as Jonah shows us, true repentance causes us to go to God. Like, how do you know the difference? True repentance will always lead you to God. It will lead you away from sin and to God. This is what verse 8 and 9 says. The king says to the people, call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. The Ninevites turn from their sin and they turn to God. This is absolutely vital. Because what this shows is that this was more than lip service. They just weren't saying they were sorry. Sorry I did that. Sorry about being brutal and oppressive and wicked. But they actually turn away from their sin. There's a change in their behavior. There's a change in their life. But it is also not just moral reform. Hear me on this. Like you can morally reform and not turn to God. You can morally reform and not be repenting. Like you could say, hey, I hate being angry, and so I'm going to work really hard at not being angry, but actually never turn to God. You, you can deal with certain sins by trying to improve your self-control, but you never actually turn to God. Real repentance, real sorrow for sin leads you to run towards God and his grace and mercy. So how do we know that we're brought under conviction and, and we're biblically Holy Spirit-filled, sorrowful for our sin, it's because we turn from sin and we turn to God. That is what Nineveh did. They, They change in their behavior, but that change is directed to the Lord. And there's great hope for all who repent from their sins. Salvation. This is what we see in verse 10. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. See, God sees their true, heartfelt repentance, and he forgives their sin. He withholds judgment. God is the sovereign, holy, good God who brings justice and judgment on sin, but that in no way diminishes that he is a God of mercy and grace. He is merciful to those who turn from their sin. He's not stingy with his salvation. He promises salvation for those who turn from their sin. This is what God said through the prophet Jeremiah in Jeremiah 18. 
If at any time I declare concerning a nation or a kingdom that I will pluck up and break down and destroy it, and if that nation concerning which I have spoken turns from its evil, I will relent of the disaster that I intended to do it. God promises when you turn from your sin, I will relent from my judgment and I will save. There is great hope in true heartfelt repentance because God promises to save. And here really is sort of the crescendo and the climax of the book of Jonah. God sends Jonah on this mission. He's reluctant. God straightens him out. Then he sends him to this wicked, oppressive, brutal city to proclaim judgment. And Nineveh turns and repents and God exercises mercy and grace on them. This is this incredible picture of salvation because, look, if anybody didn't deserve to be saved, it was Nineveh. Like, I don't care how nasty and brutal you can conceive of a group of people being in today's world. Nineveh beat them. Nineveh was the worst of the worst, and yet here is God's mercy and grace even to the worst of sinners. They turn from their sin, and God saves them. God relents. God gives them mercy and grace. Truly, salvation belongs to the Lord. This is God's doing. Nothing else could explain why Nineveh would break out into repentance so quickly except the power and the spirit of God through his word. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Now, a question is in front of us, though. How do God's judgment and his mercy relate? If God is holy and good and just, should he not always punish sin? How can he let Nineveh, who is such a brutal and oppressive city, how can he let him off the hook? Like if a judge lets a thief and a murderer go, we would say that's actually a miscarriage of justice. So how can God be merciful and still be a God of judgment who is good and who is holy? And, and really, when you ask that question, you start to get to the problem with every other religious system. Because in every other religious system, God's mercy and his judgment, it's a zero-sum game. Here's what I mean. In order for God to exercise mercy, he actually has to relent in judgment, and he has to sort of overlook and just say, okay, I'm not going to punish that sin. And so he has to sort of let go of his justice. But conversely, if God is going to be a God of justice, well, then what hope is there for mercy? Because if, if he's good then he has to punish sin. And so you're in this conundrum in every other religious system of if God isn't just and holy, and he, then, then, or excuse me, if he, if he shows mercy, then how can he be just and holy and let sin go? But if he doesn't, let, doesn't have mercy, then what hope do we have? And so these two things are intention. One has to give and the other has to let go. But in Christianity, in the gospel, that problem is not a problem. Like, only in Christianity is God's absolute justice and his absolute mercy held up together simultaneously with no contradiction. Because at the cross, God's justice and judgment and mercy meet. Because on the cross, God pours out all the wrath and all the judgment and all the justice that you and our sins deserve, that all the sin of this world deserves, on Jesus in this incredible act of mercy in order to save you see, on the cross, God's justice is held up. The Son of God on a tree, brutal death, saying, yes, this is how much I hate sin. 
This is how big a deal sin is, but this is also how merciful I am. And so at the cross, God's goodness is upheld. At the cross, God's judgment and justice is upheld. At the cross, we see how much he hates sin, but we also see how much he loves and how gracious and merciful he is. And so church, we have a God who is good. We have a God who is just, and we also have a God who is merciful and gracious, and those two things do not detract from one another. He is perfectly both at the same time. And as we read in Romans 3, prior to Christ, every act of God's mercy and forgiveness was God looking forward to what Christ would do. But since Christ has come, every act of God's mercy and forgiveness is reflecting on what Christ has done. And so at the center is Jesus regardless. What saved Nineveh? Christ hadn't come, but it was anticipation of what Christ would do. What saves you and I? Jesus Christ. So no matter how you slice it, it's the mercy and grace of God on the cross where his judgment was poured out. This is how salvation is possible for us. This is how we can proclaim both judgment and mercy at the same time and not do violence to either. And listen, church, really, we should uphold both. And be ready to uphold both. Because in both, the gospel is beautiful. Like if we minimize just how bad sin is, then we make Christ's sacrifice out to not be that big a deal. Like if we minimize just how much God hates sin, that it took the very life of the Son of God to forgive our sins and to save us, then we miss just how great a sacrifice, just how much love God has for us. So we should rejoice. We should celebrate. Yeah, we need to be humble. We need to be humble about judgment because we need to know we deserve it too. So when we talk about judgment, it's never pointing a finger at someone else. It's to saying, hey, I'm in this too. Yet for the grace and mercy of God, I deserve judgment too. But we uphold the mercy and grace of God in Christ. The only way for salvation, the only hope that you and I have God's goodness on display, his mercy on display, his grace on display. And he holds out this salvation to you this morning. If you've never put your faith in Christ, if you've never turned from your sin and followed Jesus, know that that message is for you even this morning. God wants to demonstrate his love towards you through Jesus. He wants you to experience his forgiveness He wants you to experience just how much he loves sinners by turning from your sin and putting your faith in him because his promise is to save all who turn to him. And so here's what we need to understand. Our sin will be judged. The question is, who's going to take the judgment? Will it be Jesus or will it be you? Will you allow Jesus to take your judgment for you? Will you trust in his sacrifice? Or will you remain in your rebellion and face God in his judgment on the last day? Why would you remain in your sin? Why would you hold on to pride and selfishness and greed and lust and anger? Why why would you not turn to a God who holds out mercy and grace and has made every provision for you to be forgiven? 
who has paid every price for you to be forgiven, who has satisfied his righteous requirement and judgment on his own son. Why would you hold on? I want to make one more point here in closing. We talk about repentance. We talk about wanting to turn from our sin and turn to God, and that is absolutely necessary. But I want to be also be very clear. Repentance is not what saves you. I understand what I'm saying here. Repentance is not what saves you. It is not the good work of repentance that saves you. Because guess what? You will never repent perfectly. It's not as if Nineveh repented one time and they never sinned again. It's not as if you and I, when we repent and put our faith in Christ, never sin again. No, our repentance is not perfect. Our salvation is not in our repentance. Our salvation is in Jesus Christ. He is who saves us. Let me illustrate it this way. Let's say you are in a burning building and you're on top of the building. And down below, a bunch of firefighters have set up this huge cushion for you to jump in. You jump off the building into the cushion. What saves you? The cushion. Did jumping save you? No, jumping is what puts you into the cushion. It's the same thing with our repentance. Repentance doesn't save us. Repentance moves us to what does save us. Jesus Christ. And I drive this point home because I don't want us to put our hope in our repentance. I don't want us to put our hope in our ability to get it right in our repentance. I want us to put our hope in Jesus alone, in his power. Because look, some of you, when you repent, and some of the times when we repent, Man, we do it very gracefully. We jump off that building and we land softly. And sometimes our repentance is neat and clean and, and there's a lot of freedom that comes right away. Sometimes our repentance looks like jumping off head first and spiraling and hitting that thing really hard and it's ugly and painful. And sometimes that's what our repentance looks like. It's messy. But regardless, the promise is the same. That the promise is still sure. Our hope and our salvation is still right there. Jesus Christ catching us. And so if you have yet to put your faith in Christ, let me urge you, let me proclaim to you, there is a God who saves to the uttermost. He saves liars. He saves murderers. He saves pedophiles. He saves abusers. He saves those who have been greedy and deceitful. He saves you, he saves you in your manipulation, in your pride, in your selfishness. Whatever the sin is, God saves. There's hope for you. For those of you who are in Christ, I want to encourage you to keep repenting. Here's your hope. That as you continue to walk out repentance, God keeps renewing you. He keeps transforming you. He keeps saving you. I want to encourage you to continue to have a softness and a conviction, and a sorrowful spirit about the sin in your heart, but then also rejoice in the salvation that you have. Run to Christ and be comforted. Run to Christ and be renewed. We don't practice ongoing repentance because we're afraid we're going to lose our salvation, because we can't. But we do that so that we can be more and more like Jesus and experience more of his renewal. So let us all keep repenting. Amen? Church, God's judgment and God's mercy. Two profound truths, two necessary truths, two beautiful truths that we hold up, that, that we celebrate, that we proclaim. 
Let us give our lives to the greatness of who God is. Let us proclaim without apology, in all humility, yes, but without apology, that God righteously will judge. But let's also proclaim the mercy and grace that is found in Jesus Christ, that sinners can be forgiven because he's taken all that judgment on himself. Amen?